associated with the Shreya Ardikshit Memorial Foundation. This is the Distraction-Free Life podcast. From personal stories to the legislation that is shaping the cause, this is your place to get the latest information and analysis over the distraction-free driving issue. Welcome to the Distraction-Free Life Podcast. My name is Aish Gujral, and I'm your host. The Distraction-Free Life Podcast was started with an initiative related to distracted driving, but now we interview public figures and people that are very, very well known on topics like technology and the environment. We talk about political and social issues today, and we provide a different perspective from public figures instead of looking towards policies and other things like that. So. Without further ado, we have a very special guest with us today. His name is Paul Asa. He is the president of the Minnesota Safety Council. In the, pres- in the Minnesota Safety Council, he works in close cooperation with the board to develop, manage, and deliver programs and activities that carry out the Safety Council's mission of preventing injury where you live, work, drive, and play. He's also been a city coordinator for the city of Minneapolis and a commissioner for the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. So, Mr. Austin, without further ado, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your journey, and where you are now. Oh, great, I'd be happy to, and thanks for inviting me to be part of this today. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, as you mentioned, I'm currently with the Minnesota Safety Council, and uh, for those who don't know what the Minnesota Safety Council is, we're actually a uh, a chapter of the National Safety Council. And we were founded in 1925. So we're 96 years old. And for that entire time, we've been working to help keep people work safe at work. That's where most of our time and energy is spent. Uh, but we also have a, a very big presence in the traffic safety world. And then a general charter from the Minnesota legislature to help keep Minnesotans safe broadly. So we work with a lot of allies who do things like hand out bike helmets at Como Park Zoo in the summer or work on drowning prevention, all those kinds of different areas. But uh, I think what brings us in our past across today is mostly traffic safety. And we've uh, got a long standing program in the safety council that works with employers on how to help keep their employees safe when they're driving on the job or to or from work. And for most of us in our daily lives, driving is the biggest risk item we do and biggest risk activity we undertake. So that's why we focus in on driving as an employee issue as well as a general issue in in the world. Um, By training, I'm a toxicologist. And uh, so my background is, is more environmental, but I've worked in the Department of Public Safety over time. I've worked at the Met Council. I've worked in three different nonprofits and I've worked for three governors and a mayor. So it's this combination for me of, uh, you know, some science, some public policy, some management. And uh, it's brought me here today and brought me to interact with folks, folks like UIS and the the DFL, who's uh, the next generation that's going to be taking over for us old guys as we go out the door. Yeah, and before we dive into traffic safety and road safety, mm-hmm. I want to quickly touch on what you were just talking about, which is environmental public policy. And clearly you have a background in that. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you've done over the years related to environmental policy? 
Sure. Um, you know, initially coming into the professional workforce as a toxicologist, um, you know, I was involved with uh, helping implement some of the early toxicity testing that was done uh, on the rivers and lakes. And we were basically testing to see if uh, chemical pollution in the bodies of water were, were you know, sufficiently dangerous that it would kill fish and water fleas and all kinds of sensitive organisms. Um, but that, you know, led to public policy work on standards for toxics in water and in the air, as well as risk assessments of exposures for workers and the general public to different kinds of toxics. And um, for me, anyway, that led to work in emergency management and emergency planning for chemical spills, as well as kind of broader public policy work on, uh, you know, essentially the rulemaking around toxics and, and toxic materials, and then eventually into the real broad work of natural disaster relief and you know, preparation and response, which was a, a big piece of what I, I did in the, in the 90s. So there's the, the thing that connects all these pieces is there are hazards that we are exposed to. And whether it's lead in your water, or, and this is a, a very graphic example, or high-speed lead out of the end of a gun, you still have a lead problem. And so it's really a matter of how quickly that lead becomes an issue for your body. And uh, you know the spectrum is the same in safety, right? You've got chemical exposures or biological exposures, COVID being a prime example, and, you know, and some of that takes a little more time versus a crash in a vehicle, which is very acute. But thinking about those risks and trying to create systems in the public arena that help reduce them is largely been what I've had a chance to be involved with this whole time. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest, like, you know, environmental issues that someone might think about is this idea of climate change and how that kind of plays into it. So in your experience, mm -hmm. what are some of like important things that you've come across that you could kind of deduce to be related to climate change or around right. those lines? Yeah, the I think number one, I think, the first place for any of us to start on climate change is to think about how we are contributors. And there's a wonderful, if you want to think about that way, there's a dramatic, let's put it that way, that's a better word, a dramatic intersection between our contribution to climate change and our driving. For most of us, our number one contribution to global warming is the emissions from our vehicles. And so when you start to talk about vehicle miles traveled, you get an intersection between climate change and safety. And if we can reduce vehicle miles traveled, it will make us safer because we're removing a big personal risk and it will make the planet better because we're reducing a, a big air pollution contributor. So that's a, that's a wonderful connection. In terms of you know, impacts of climate, um, the, the weather patterns in this state have changed you know, without question. And this notion of more um, intense and shorter duration weather events is very, very real. And you start to look at the, 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 the hydrologic cycle, the water cycle and the flood cycle. And you know the variances between the lows and highs get greater, which means that it gets that much harder to deal with the flood 
or the drought has that much more impact on the moose. And you know this is very real and it is happening right now. I'm a very, very dedicated and avid downhill skier. I've done it for 55 years. And we used to be able to go on the snow in the first week of November. Now we're lucky to get on by Thanksgiving. And normally we would ski in this state. I remember skiing um, on April 21st up in Taylor's Falls, Minnesota. And I look out in my backyard right now and I think we'll be lucky to see May, you know, March 21st. So personally, professionally, individually, we're all seeing this mix of contributions we make and the problem that is starting to present. And um, COVID is a biological reminder that there are threats out there that we all have to manage. I think that just speaking from the safety perspective, a lot of the safety world is very good at managing physical threats okay at managing chemical and radiological threats, but we have forgotten what it takes to manage a biological threat. So COVID has been a good reminder, but there are diseases that are endemic in wildlife in this state. Um, you know, the Western equine encephalitis comes to mind. Uh, you know, the pneumonic and bubonic plague are not too far away in, in Montana. And as the temperature starts to change how fleas and mice move around our continent, you will see diseases move. And so there's this, uh, COVID has been a heck of a reminder of the biological issues that we may face in the future. Yeah, and that's a really good point that, you know, there's so many different types of issues in terms of safety and COVID is really one of these prominent exigent issues that we all need to look at. And um, what I wanna know is, where does the Minnesota Safety Council fall into this? Like what role does the Safety Council play to help solve issues like COVID or make headway on issues like climate change? The, the biggest thing we can do on uh, the COVID front, we'll start with that, is we work with predominantly our member companies. There's about 1,200 companies representing 2,000 facilities and about 5,000 workers that are direct members of the Safety Council. We do our best to provide them with real-time information on how they can modify their safety procedures to try to keep their employees safe. And we don't pretend to be infectious disease experts, but we know some, you know, we know we've got tremendous allies at the Department of Health and, you know, in the Department of Labor and Industry with Minnesota OSHA, as well as access to national resources through the National Safety Council. And, and so, very early on, I think uh, by the end of March, maybe maybe it was a week or two into April last year, right as everything shut down, you know, we published a set of, of emergency planning guidance documents on our website that came from us. We generated those, and those were kind of our first volley of information out to our members saying, here's the things you can do now, here's the practices you should put in place right now to try to reduce the risk to your employees. And then we've augmented that with better and more complete information from you know, state government and national sources as we've moved along. So that's been you know, the front end of the effort. The middle of the COVID effort for us has been to keep the, the information up to date and to create places where our members can share information and, and work with their peers. 
And so we host, you know, pretty large Zoom meetings and, and Teams meetings on a very regular basis with our members. And we have great discussions about how are you handling the double masking issue or what are you doing with employees that have got second or third level of potential exposures and, and how do you how do you deal with that in your human resource you know department, that kind of thing. So that's been kind of the middle of the conversation. And now at the at the trailing edge, I mean we're not done, but this this current space, we've really uh, implemented a whole series of mental health educational and outreach efforts. And this we've been very fortunate. Our good friends at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Minnesota chapter, are the subject matter experts, and we've basically been able to put them into our network and get their information and seminars out to our members as well as non-members. They're open to anybody. But we've been regularly running sessions on how to cope with COVID in the workplace and mental health wellness during COVID and how to cope with kids during, during COVID as well as some quite serious uh, you know, suicide awareness and, and suicide prevention training. And we are trying to make sure people are not neglecting the mental health impacts of a year of dealing with an infectious disease. So those are the main kind of COVID side and all of that type of work would apply to any biological threat. So we're gonna have to learn how to think about anticipating what's next or you know, if there are parts of the state that start to see certain kinds of, of biological threats, the south, Southwest will see things before the Northeast will just because of temperature. You know, how can we help our members and how can we help the general public then with that same information? The, the climate change issue is an interesting one. We don't have a direct environmental stake in the ground, but we clearly have a transportation stake in the ground. And given that transportation is such a big piece of the puzzle, um, we've got uh, uh, a standing desire to reduce risk on the road, which runs directly into this vehicle miles traveled, as we talked about earlier, which runs directly into, at least in the urban areas, a need for more choices for public transportation and mass transit, which is also safer. So it's a nice mix there between the two. Um, and then I think in the longer run, uh, there's gonna be two facets uh, of, the, of the environmental impact that come into play and they are intertwined and it is actually air quality. And I would just like to make the pitch that climate change and global warming is actually an air pollution issue. And if you cast it on that light and start to think about emissions into the air, you also end up with some very important and serious equity issues, particularly in the urban core. It's the, the same areas of the urban core where there is traffic congestion and massive, tra massive traffic emissions, which obviously triggers global warming, are also then impacted by the direct air pollution health impacts from those same emissions. And so people who live along the freeway corridors have higher incidences of lung cancer and asthma than those who don't. And so I think we will run into this issue more directly on that pure air quality front than we will eventually on the climate front. But carbon in the air is just an air pollution problem. 
so I think it is helpful to think about it that way. Yeah, and I think that's a really cool way of thinking about climate change in terms of air pollution and how it's all essentially rooted down to transportation and vehicle and even down to vehicle safety. And um, when we talk about urban areas, that's where there's this traffic congestion, as you mentioned, and there's also a correlation with traffic safety. You know, there's lots of more danger in driving in urban areas than there would be more out west or more out of the urban area. So um, it does vary a little bit. Um, sure. Ironically, and, and, and we aren't, this is not an official public position of the Safety Council, but uh, traffic jams actually reduce fatalities and serious injuries because everybody's going slow. So you get a lot of fender benders, but no one's getting, you know, hurt. So ironically, um, you know, I have jokingly said to our board, I think we should be in favor of congestion because then everybody would be going slower. Uh, but then you get this air pollution issue, which is equally dangerous in the long run. So it doesn't quite work out that way, but just a factoid, 65% of traffic crashes occur in the metro area. 75% of fatalities occur outside the metro area. And that's because of the higher speeds and less controlled roadways that you're running on in greater Minnesota. So there's this weird paradox that traffic safety takes two different shapes. One is metro and one is outside the metro. Yeah, and that's a that's actually a very interesting distinction because it's a little bit counterintuitive when you first think about it, but um, the way it plays out, I guess, in, you know, urban areas, the slower speeds does contribute to less traffic problems or less safety right. problems. Um, yeah, so in terms, of, in terms of transportation safety or vehicle safety mm -hmm. in general, um, what does the, Minnesota Safety Council do, or how are you guys approaching that issue in terms of your guidelines? You've clearly talked about how you have discussions with corporations. What else or what type of you know actions are you taking on that front? Yeah, so there's there's three main things that, that we do, well, maybe four, depending on how you think about it. But as you mentioned, we work with corporations and we do two things with them. We help make sure that their training and policies for what employees can and can't do in their, when they're operating the fleet for that company makes sense. And, and that means in terms of uh, driving records and, and expected behaviors and uh, cross checks on people's driver's license status, all those kinds of things. And in some cases, much more specialized. If you're transporting hazardous materials, for example, obviously there's some very specialized training. So that's, that's one. Um, the, the other thing that we do, and this crosses over between the fleet and the individual citizens world, is, is we do offer defensive driving training. And that takes mostly, it's aimed at two audiences, or we see two audiences most of, mostly. There's an under, there's an under 25 system. It's, you know, Alive at 25 is the name of the training. It's often court referred. So this is, you know, essentially drivers retraining for people who have somehow gotten in, you know, had too many tickets or gotten in trouble with the law and their license. So we try to help those drivers kind of reorient how they're thinking about driving culture. This is all classroom training. We don't do on the road training, um, but it is a, a piece of the puzzle. And then the other similarly classroom training and refreshers is defensive driving training. And our most frequent clients are, are Minnesotans over 55 years old and in Minnesota, you actually get a discount on your car insurance. 
if you go through this kind of training. So we do an awful lot of courses for that audience. So we're trying to reorient, you know, experienced and veteran drivers. And in some cases, you know, we have people who are 70, 80 years old coming through those programs. So it's also trying to help that aging driver realize how their driving habits need to change as their physical abilities change over time. And that's gonna be uh, an ongoing issue and, and focus for us because as everybody knows, the, the baby boomer generation is rapidly aging into that 60, 70, 80 you know, year demographic. And so the number of older drivers on the road is going up. The questions that families are asking about should grandpa or grandma still be driving is a question that's not easily answered. And so we've been working with a couple of universities to develop curriculums for behind the wheel drivers, educators to give to older you know, drivers so they can check on their skills uh, so that those drivers can kind of reorient how they should think differently in the car. And it gives those families then a sense of, of comfort that yes, you know, grandma or grandpa has been through a program that gives them some feeling of their ability to be behind the wheel, or maybe it's time to think about not being the behind the wheel, which then ironically circles all the way back to that public transit conversation we had earlier, because if I lose my license, boy, I'm gonna need cabs or Ubers or trains or buses or something. And in the Metro, I've got a chance. Greater Minnesota, what are you gonna do? There are really no bus lines left in greater Minnesota. There, you know, there's no country Uber, you know, and, and being an Uber driver in Northwest Minnesota is not gonna be very lucrative because you're driving hours for one fare. So it's a very interesting problem, again, that splits urban and greater Minnesota, just like these other issues we've been talking about. Yeah. and. At least, you know, so what I found was interesting about what you were just talking about, and it kind of alluded to something that I like to think about when I think of distracted driving, and it is that there's really two approaches to solve road safety or distracted driving related issues. There is a top down approach in which you have like corporations or organizations like the Minnesota Safety Council that pass guidelines and discussions and help corporations mm -hmm. um, invest in the people. So that's going from top down with guidelines, but there's also a bottom-up approach, which is really where organizations like the Shreya Dixit Foundation try to support distracted driving. It's where we inspire the people themselves to take actions on an individual level and try to fix their behaviors in the car instead of focusing on guidelines. And I like to think that there's like a combination of both that really would need to solve distracted driving or road safety. Um, so what, what type of message would you have for perhaps the the bottom up or even the top down approach mm -hmm. when it comes to distracted driving and road safety? Yeah, I, th I think A, you described the balance between those two processes very well. I mean, um, there's a there's a statute and, and I can't remember, it's, it's in Minnesota statutes, chapter 169. I can't remember the subheader at the moment, but it basically says that as a licensed driver, you have an obligation to operate your vehicle in a, in a way that's reasonable and safe for the given conditions and situation. And if you think about that, we shouldn't need any other laws, 
right? You know, I mean, if we all just were able to do that and did that responsibly, you wouldn't need speeding laws or distracted driving laws or drunken driving laws. And so I think our law itself and its structure uh, reflects what you just talked about. The bottom up is we each have a responsibility to ourselves and then to other people on the roadway to operate in a way that doesn't endanger them or us. And um, that's what really, really counts. Uh, but because we don't always do that, then you get these layers that come in on top of it that say, oh, by the way, responsible on the road outside your home is 20 miles an hour if you're in a core city now, not 30, it's 20. 20 is plenty, right? And so then you start to get these more defined markers that help define what responsible is. So I think in terms of, of you know, technology and vehicles and distracted driving and working on the broader safety forefront, there's some interesting convergences that are occurring right now. Um, on some level, the safest vehicle would be one where the human's not driving. You know, take me out of the equation as that person who may or may not be operating responsibly and have this vehicle that's smart enough to drive itself. Um, that's, that's a future you will see. Um, I might start to see this, the beginning of it. But, uh, you know, everything that has made the world safer for us in the vehicle at this point is technology. The seat belts are better. The airbags are better. You've got analog braking. You've got the lane departure warnings. You've got the side view mirrors that show when people are in your, your blind spots. All of that has clearly helped. At the same time, there's larger and larger screens and devices in the cars that are potentially distracting, if not absolutely distracting. Um, you know, we were all talking at, at, at one of our traffic safety conversations about the fact that um, in some of the new vehicles, the heating and cooling controls are on that touchscreen. And you have to look at the touchscreen to you know, move the slider to make it warmer or colder. Whereas on the uh, 67 Buick Electra that I learned how to drive in, there was just this very crude lever on the dashboard that was cold on one side and hot on the other. And you could just reach down without even looking away from the road and grab that lever and move it. And I could move it and make it hotter or move it and make it colder. And the same was true of, of the, the radios at the time. They had push buttons that I could just reach over and punch and not again, look away from the road. And some of this new technology, even though you can talk to it, which is great, if you haven't figured out how to talk to it, you're gonna be looking at it and touching it. So that alone is a problem, much less adding these, right? So we've got the dash on the, the screen on the dash and we've got the screen in our hand. That's hopefully not in our hand, right? In this state, it's against the law to have it in your hand. Um, that do create this distraction. And I think fundamentally we have to ask ourselves, well, why are people distracted while they're driving? Um, is driving too easy? I mean, you could make a case that we should have narrow roads with potholes in them because that would force you to pay attention and it would slow you down. 
you know? Um, it, if the roads are built to go 90 on and we're going 60, that means you'd feel like you can go 90, which is what exactly what people have been doing during the COVID period. When there haven't been other cars in the way, the road itself is not enough to make you slow down. So I, th I think this weird overlap between personal behavior on distraction and the work that, that you and the DFL clubs do to get people to think about their behavior is critical. But I also think we're in this time period where we've got systems that'll support more, but we haven't adapted as drivers yet. And I think we still need to maintain those, particularly on the enforcement side, those top-down regulations to try to cap that desire to drive faster until you can take me out of driving, in which case I don't care if it takes me two or three hours to get to Duluth. If I can sit there and watch a movie and write a paper and have a meeting while the vehicle is taking me there, just like it would on a train, then I don't care how fast I get there within reason. Right now, if I'm headed to the cabin and I can take half an hour off that drive because that drive is wasted time, I'm going to step on the gas pedal a little harder. So that at the end of the day is the great mystery. And we don't have an answer to it yet. We're doing the same thing the DFL clubs are doing is trying to encourage people to recognize their behavior and to recognize the true risks and the true benefits of five more miles an hour of speed. Um, my good friend, Colonel Matt Langer always says, whatever problems you're having on the road, speed makes it worse. If you're drunk, it's worse. If you're distracted, it's worse. If it's icy, it's worse. You know, if it's congested and you're trying to speed, it's worse. So I think, you know, job number one in the near term, particularly coming out of COVID, is to knock speeds down. And then job number two is to reinstitute that culture of individual responsibility that you and all of your colleagues are working on. Yeah, and there's a lot of amazing points that you brought up there. And before we kind of wind down here, I want to ask you one question about um, something you just brought up, which was not being allowed to use your phone and this new law, the new hands-free law in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And perhaps this is probably the biggest enforcement um, technique we've used on technology in the past couple of years to restrict um, the use of cell phones. And that's, it's, it's, it's a big step. So what, what policy or um, enforcement is next? What's going to come next after the hands-free law? That's a really good question. Um... I think, I think the hands-free, you know, there may be tweaks that are needed to it over time, but leaving that aside, kind of the core of this, put it down, you can talk to it, but you can't touch it. I think that's probably maybe as far as we're gonna get politically on that in, in the near time. I think um, the next layer to that is probably gonna come from the technology side. And it's gonna be interesting to see the, the last four years, because the Trump administration has had no interest in this kind of a conversation, has, has, has been kind of a hold. But prior to that, there were some fairly serious conversations going on at the national level between auto manufacturers and safety advocates, including the governmental safety advocates, about creating vehicles that are safe enough that even if you get in a crash, you won't die. 
Volvo, for example, has committed to, I think it's pretty soon, I, I wanna say 2025, to no fatal crashes in their vehicles. Well, how are they gonna do that? Well, you're gonna need to build a vehicle that's got a safe pod, right? You know, that doesn't get intruded upon. And you're gonna have to have the technology on the vehicle to help it drive itself much better, if not completely. And similarly in that vein, I would love it if the major manufacturers of cell phones and other you know, devices would essentially use the accelerometers that are in these devices to have them shut down 90% of their capability as soon as you're going over five miles an hour. And the only thing that would work after five miles an hour is voice activated maps and texting and phone calls, and I can trigger my music if I'm desperate or a podcast. But wouldn't that be interesting if that screen went black as soon as this thing was going five miles an hour? Also, there's no reason for me to stare at it. And that's a front that I know that other folks have worked on. I know our friends at the Dixit Foundation have worked on it. That may be the next big step on the distraction front. Yeah, and that's a that's a really cool type of like a technology thing we can do. And I think that would definitely reduce the amount of safety problems that we have in, you know, in terms of roads and driving. Um, so just one last question for you. Mm -hmm. What is a message you would have for the general Minnesotan drivers to how they can improve road safety and be a better driver on the road? I think uh, right now the message is clearly slow down just slow down. Every five miles an hour you slow down makes a big difference in your ability to survive a crash in the impact you'll have on others if you have a crash. Um, the most striking evidence is around vehicle collisions with pedestrians. And if that vehicle is going over 25 miles an hour, that pedestrian is going to get very, very seriously hurt, probably killed. If that vehicle is going under 25 miles an hour, the pedestrian will probably get banged up, but the odds go way up that they're gonna walk away. So five miles an hour does matter. It matters on the freeway, it matters on your driveway, and it matters on your local roads. So that would be the primary message at the moment. Yeah, that's awesome. That's an awesome message for everyone who's on the roads. Going slow will really save you a split second that can save lives even. So thank you everyone for listening to the Distraction Free Life podcast today. Um, thank you, Mr. Austin, for joining us today. Lots of insightful information. And it was great to have you today. Thank you, Ayesh. I had a great time. Associated with the Shreya Ardikshit Memorial Foundation, this is the Distraction Free Life podcast. From personal stories to the legislation that is shaping the cause, this is your place to get the latest information and analysis over the distraction-free driving issue.